So we will continue now into Matthew chapter 16. And some of this will be um, built into at the end as well. So to refresh our memory on what we talked about last week. Uh, last week we talked about refreshing our memory. And how important that is. It's, uh, it's good for us to be reminded of characteristics of God, of Jesus, to be encouraged from one another. And so we were challenged to do that for each other. So I hope at some point you were able to encourage somebody with a word of truth from the Bible or something that you've learned from God in your lifetime with somebody else here in church. Uh, that, that was one of our challenges. And so we saw that people are hurting uh, as we looked at these miracles, we saw that people were hurting without Christ, but Jesus cares and there's healing with them. Um, we saw that in the 4,000 plus people that were, uh, that were fed and all of the people that were in a line being healed as Jesus sat there. And uh, so now we're into 16, uh, looking at from verses 1 to 4 this morning. So please stand um, as we read the word of God here. Uh, to get into the text. We stand for a couple reasons. One, because uh, it is a sign of God moving in and through us as, uh, as Gateway Downtown, as people. And also, it's God's words that he's given us and uh, the reverent there um, to be respected. So we're standing to read the text that we're learning from this morning. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather. The sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your words to us that are in the Bible, that we can learn from these and grow from these. And, and God, I thank you for meeting us here this morning. I thank you that you're uh, amongst us. You're in us, not just personally, but as a community. And so I just pray that we will, as a community here, worshiping you, we will grow in our knowledge of you and our faith of you and our love of you, Jesus. And we will learn uh, more about you this morning. Rest our minds, rest our hearts, help us find peace in you this morning and, and right now. We love you, God, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you can be seated. So I saw this and I thought about alliances and um, how alliances form, uh, not friendships, but alliances even more so. And uh, in, in the world, the way that we've had these, the Peloponnesian War, war um, from the 400s B.C., uh, we see a strange alliance form between Corinth and Sparta. Uh, the only reason they formed, they didn't get along at all. The only reason they formed an alliance together was because Athens was getting too strong. They didn't like Athens. They were scared of what Athens was going to do. Later on in history, we see, uh, I was thinking about strange alliances and um, I think the United States had a pretty strange alliance in World War II with Russia. It was strange because Russia actually was in an alliance. Uh, they had an agreement with Germany, and then they attacked them, and so it ended that. And so we allied with Russia mainly because of a fear of, uh, of Germany and their rising forces. And even today, in, in today's world, we're still seeing alliances formed that don't necessarily makes I don't know how many of you follow history or world news or politics, but the fact that Saudi Arabia is, a, is an ally now with Israel 
uh, is pretty strange. You, you wouldn't have thought that would happen maybe five years ago. And here they are, allies, just for a common fear of Iran. They're not sure what Iran is going to do. And so Israel is thinking maybe they can have something going on. So even though they don't have very uh, aligned motives or, or beliefs, they're actually um, in an alliance now. And so it's a, a strange alliance, these ones that we've seen throughout history. And here we see another strange alliance formed. Um, in Mark's account of this uh, section, it's in chapter 8, we see... Um, we saw that the 4,000 are fed, and then they hit the seas. They took the boat over to the district of Dalmanutha. And so we see Jesus here being met by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, we saw Jesus interacting with the Pharisees last week, and we've seen often that Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. We don't see the Sadducees referenced as much um, in, the, in the Gospels. And so here we see them both. And there is a difference. They're both Jewish, yes. They're both uh, Israelites, so they're called as uh, children of God. But they have very different beliefs and different uh, of different... Uh, uh, well, lost the words. Uh, different motives, I guess I would say. Uh, and, and they don't have many reasons to get along. And, and here they are, a little history lesson. The differences between the two, the Pharisees, uh, who we do see more about, were working people. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee, in fact. And so they're more the working class. They are with the people, and they really wanted to be separated from the Gentiles. So the Pharisees, as Jewish people, did not want to be at all involved with Gentiles. Yes, they were under Roman rule, but they didn't want to be. And so they had their own little thing going, and they were okay with it. They were very much heavily relying upon their self-righteousness and how they lived their lives. They held, str- they held strongly true to the rabbinic tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, and they saw that Scripture was equal um, in authority to that. They were very uh, fundamental theologically, and so by fundamental I would say that they um, believed in supernatural uh, angels and demons, miracles, those sorts of things. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, that uh, your soul went somewhere after this life on earth. And, uh, and so that was a little bit about the Pharisees. And the Sadducees, who we don't see as much, they were uh, in the upper echelon of the time, really. They were aristocratic, very political. They would partner with Gentiles as much as they wanted to, as long as it gave them personal gain. Uh, they were very heavily involved in animal sacrifices because it made them a lot of money, and that was what they wanted. They wanted a lot of money. They, as opposed to the Pharisees, maybe the biggest error uh, in their theology was the fact that they did not believe that there was life after or after uh, what we have here on earth. They believed you died. They didn't think there was an immortal soul by any means. And, uh, and so their beliefs were very different from one another. And, and the disparity between the two sects is very cleanly seen um, in Acts. Uh, chapter 23, we'll pull it up here. Paul is in front of the Sanhedrin. So he's on trial. Paul is about to maybe be executed right here in 23. And, and here's what happens. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? 
And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So there's the little history lesson for you. We see how much they despise each other here over Paul. One comment about how there is life after death, and they're tearing each other apart. They hate each other. But here they're united. And just as we saw the alliances that are united because of a common fear of somebody else, they are united here because they fear or at least hate Jesus. And so why don't they like Jesus? Why don't they like Christ? There's a couple reasons why uh, they might not like him. One is that they might be afraid of losing their autonomy. Right now, as I said, they're under Roman rule, yes, but the Roman Empire didn't really rule them that much. They just let them do their own thing, okay? As long as they're staying settled, as long as they have their own people, that's okay because they're still in our rule. They're still paying us a little bit here. And so they like that. They like the autonomy, being in the Roman Empire and still getting to do what they wanted. They were leading their own people. They were handling their own punishments, and, and they like that. And so Jesus here might be disrupting that. And if Jesus disrupts that, what happens? Well, now the Roman Empire has to come in, and now they might lose their power. They might lose the autonomy that they have. So that might be one reason why they don't like Jesus very much. It might be hard for them to live that life. And then another reason uh, is, is that they might lose power um, over themselves, their self-righteousness. The Pharisees, Sadducees, I mean, they're very self-righteous people. And so Jesus is not allowing them to do that from what he's teaching. And they don't like that. And because he's not allowing that, they're now feeling guilt. From what Jesus is saying, they're feeling a lot of guilt. And guilt we can deal with in a couple different ways. And the way that we see, see them dealing with guilt is not facing it and listening to what Jesus says on how to combat guilt. But instead, they just try to get rid of where they're feeling the guilt from. They try to belittle Jesus, get rid of him. They don't like him. So we see the denial of guilt, why we deny guilt. We see that explained in John chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So that's the other group of people. Maybe they're scared of losing autonomy, but also they don't want to be exposed to their sin. They don't want to be exposed to what's wrong. They don't want to face their guilt. They just want to get rid of Jesus. So they ally, they come together, they attack Jesus here in this first verse of Matthew 16. They test him, they're seeking a sign. And Mark, it actually says that they're arguing with him. So it's obviously negative. Their approach to Jesus here, how they're coming to Jesus, is very negative. They're not coming to Jesus asking him for a sign because they so badly want to believe in Jesus. They're not teetering on this edge of faith. They're not on this metaphorical fence of faith. And they're thinking, well, if only Jesus would show me a sign, then yes, I'd believe. No, they're coming at, the, at Jesus with hostility. So we see that from, from Mark saying that they were arguing with him. We see it from, um, from what they're asking him here as well. So they're coming to Jesus with hostility, opposition, and negativity. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> and this has come up in conversations recently uh, that I've had. The idea of coming and asking Jesus for things. 
I remember Thomas last week before singing a song, he actually said, um, it's okay to ask Jesus for something. And so often we can be scared to ask Jesus because we're afraid, well, maybe it looks like I'm testing God or maybe, uh, maybe it just doesn't come across the right way. And, and so what we want to not do is let that fear of asking God for something keep us from asking God for something. Because he does care. We saw last week in the miracles that he performed. Jesus does care. And he can answer signs. We see it here that uh, somebody's asking questions. They're not really asking Jesus questions, though. As I said, they aren't actually close to this line of belief or not belief. And I think a good example of a case where Jesus does answer it is in John uh, chapter 20, verses 24 to 29, the story of Thomas, not this Thomas, the Apostle Thomas. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark, place my hand in the side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said, To Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, if you believe because you've seen me, bluster those who have not seen and yet believe. So what we see is Thomas, who wasn't with everybody else when he saw Jesus the first time. He shared his heart and he shared his mind that he wasn't going to believe without a sign. And he really was on this metaphorical fence of faith where if he saw something, if he could touch it, then he'd believe. And he was close. And so he says that. He's honest with God here. And Jesus doesn't say, well, because you asked me a question, no, I'm not for you. No, he says, he sees Thomas. and He says, here it is. Here, believe. And what does that lead Thomas to? It pushes him off that fence into belief. And he now is worshiping Jesus again. Our ultimate motive, worshiping God. So being honest with Jesus is what we want to do. And it's okay to ask Jesus for something. I'm not saying he'll always give you a sign, but I'll tell you this. He's given plenty of signs for people to come to faith. When I was in Italy working with refugees in the city of Rome, uh, one of the biggest ways that refugees, if you, you could just read about this, come to faith is through dreams. And I actually saw this. I met a guy who was not sure he'd heard about Jesus as God, but he just thought Jesus was a prophet. But now he's been hearing more and more about Jesus is God and the triune spirit. And it's just too hard for him to understand. It takes him away from his culture, all these things. He just doesn't know if he can believe that. And then he has a dream of Jesus coming over to him and saying, I'm God. Believe in me. Take my hand. And he woke up sweating, scared, Didn't do anything about it. Didn't tell anything about it to anybody. Next day, same dream happened. And he woke up and he said, Jesus, I am yours. And he went and he told people that he knew were Christians. And he came to faith through a dream. He had a sign. God can give signs. He doesn't always, but he can. He wants us to be honest with him, is what the point is. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're not being honest here. They're doing this to trap Jesus. They're testing him. They want to disqualify him and they don't like it so there's two types of people that are maybe arguing with jesus here the first type in this group is the person that doesn't want to lose their personal power they have power right now they like the self-righteousness they don't want to lose it 
They're respected in their thoughts and their beliefs. So, therefore, they don't want what Jesus is giving because then they would lose a little bit of their own power. So it's very selfish. They have a selfish motive here. And then the second type of person is the one that does actually want to protect the greater good. They have this false sense of what the greater good is. They think that they are protecting the kingdom of God, that Jesus is actually a heretic. Some of them just have not seen the truth of who Jesus is. And they care more about structure than truth. So that's the second person, somebody that cares too much about structure instead of the truth of what Jesus is telling them. So there's people that are obviously selfish, and there's people that care more about structure than who Jesus is. So whether they're the first type or the second type, they both have a wrong view of God. They have a wrong view of Jesus. They're not right. And it's not honest inquiry of people that are seeking truth. It's people that are wanting to embarrass Jesus. And that is what you don't want to be. That is what you want to be weary of. Thomas was not that. And so we do need to be weary of this, though, because we do it often. Even if we are Christians, even if we have faith in Jesus Christ, there are still plenty of times that we want to hide Jesus. We've heard what Jesus said, but we don't want to do it. We try to put him down for our own selfish desires, or maybe because of a structure that I have that looks better than Jesus. So don't get the wrong idea. Just because they're Pharisees and Sadducees and you are a Christian does not mean there's a complete separation between the two. So look again at Jesus' response here to the arguing and the testing of the Pharisees. Verses 2 and 3, he shares the little nursery rhyme, the uh, thing we know so well, red skies at night, sailors delight, red skies in morning, sailors take warning. This is an old wives' tale that maybe you've heard, maybe you didn't know it was in the Bible, uh, but it is. So maybe you never believed it, but it is in the Bible. So is there truth to it? Uh, There is actually some truth to it, scientifically and uh, meteorologically, I guess you could say as well. And, uh, and so the way that it works, if you know anything about, um, about weather, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Cleveland forecasters don't because it's too hard to predict most of the time. But in mid-latitudinal zones, this does make sense because in a mid-latitudinal zone, the winds blow more or less from west to east. And so the way that the pressure zones work is you have high pressure, low pressure, high pressure, low pressure. It's a pattern across these zones. And, the, and so typically a high pressure zone is going to be nice weather. High pressure, no clouds, but there's a lot of stuff in the air. If there's no clouds, there's dust, there's air, so there's all these different things. And so when the sun shines through, while there's no clouds, there's stuff in the air, it can get this red hint, okay? And so in a low-pressure zone, lots of clouds, bad weather, storm's going to be there. So it makes sense. So red skies at night, sailors delight. Why is that? Red skies at night, they're looking, the sun's in the west, so they're looking west, Winds are blowing west to east. They see red sky. That means a high-pressure zone is coming their way. It's probably going to be nice the next day. And conversely, they're looking east in the morning. The sun's coming up. It's red. Well, that means the high-pressure zone is over there. Low pressure is coming this way. It's probably going to be bad. This is a storm. We can predict this. It's not good. There you go. There's your lesson for you. Who knew what you would learn at church? That's good. And just so you know, that required more research for me than almost anything I've taught from up here. That was hard. That was hard. So what's Jesus, at, what's Jesus getting at when he says this? What's his point? He's pointing out that it's possible to make predictions. Okay, if we have enough uh, sense, we can actually, in some sense, predict the future. 
He's telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that nature is so uniform uh, that we can be given experiences and observations and come up with a common rule. We can see signs and we can know what the result probably is going to be. They can interpret the sky, but not the signs of the times. So there have been so many signs already pointing to Jesus coming to earth as Christ, as the Messiah, as our Savior. Yet despite everything that they've seen and heard, they still don't believe because it's not the sign that they want. They want a sign from heaven. They're now qualifying the sign that they want Jesus to give. They're prescribing what Jesus should give them as a sign rather than just seeing what Jesus already gave them. There's been plenty of miracles already. I listed all of them from all the Gospels up to this point. There's already 26, water to wine. Uh, the official son drives the evil spirit out, healed Peter's mother-in-law, heals the sick in the evening, the first miraculous catch of fish, cleansed a man with leprosy, healed a centurion's servant, healed a paralytic, healed the man with a withered hand, uh, raised a widow's son, calmed the storm, cast demons into the herd of pigs, healed a woman in the crowd, uh, he raised Jairus' daughter to life, healed two blind men, healed the man that couldn't speak, the invalid in, Beth- in Bethesda, fed the 5,000, walked on water, healed the sick in Genesaret, the demon-possessed woman's daughter he healed, uh, healed the deaf and the dumb man, fed 4,000, healed a blind man at Bethsaida, healed a man born blind, all these things, 26. There's a list of all 26 miracles that Jesus already performed from all four Gospels before we get to this point. Here we are. And so he is performing these miracles, and they are, like we talked about last week, a sign that Israel now has a new king. These miracles are performed for that reason. Now they can know Jesus is the new king here. And all of these miracles are almost always combating the pain and suffering that has entered the world through sin. What I mentioned last week, and I want to clarify here, is that the reason this happens, this miracle, is, is happening and it's combating sin. It's revoking sin's original curse for that one instance of the miracle. It's not like... Jesus performs the miracle, combating that sin, and now we no longer have to struggle with that. Last week we talked about how he fed the 4,000, brought bread out of nowhere. One of the curses of sin entering the world is that we sweat and we toil for our food. So in that instance, they did not have to sweat and toil for our food. Do we now have to sweat and toil for our food? Yes. He didn't revoke that for all time. But in that one instance, he does. And so that's what these miracles are doing. For that one instance, he's showing his power. He's showing that he's Jesus, and he's doing it so people will believe. Miracles are abolishing the curse only in that instant. I want to clarify that because I did not say that well last time. Um, But they aren't going to see that, and they're going to refuse to see that, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They don't see these signs, and we see a little reason why in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. This is the hardest part to me. Jesus came to his own people. He's here with the Pharisees, his people. And his own people did not receive him. They didn't know it. Instead of seeing the signs, the miracles that are leading to him as Christ, they made excuses for what they saw or heard or they felt. And it's such a shame when we, as people, it's a shame when we don't see the signs of God Because we're seeking the signs of our own prescribing. We put on God, well, if you do this one thing, then then I'll believe you. If this one thing happens, then, okay, then I'll be able to tell my boss at work about God. Yeah. Or if you do this one thing, then I'll move. If you do this one thing, then I'll get engaged. If you do this one thing, then I'll make another step of faith. 
Well, there's a lot of stuff. And sometimes he'll do that, give you that one that you've prescribed. But sometimes it comes up in other ways too. And we have to be aware of it. And there is a miracle that he has already given us. And we've all been told this miracle. It's maybe the best miracle. It's a huge one. And maybe you've just never seen it as a miracle before. I was talking with somebody about this um, as I was planning this. And so this big miracle, the biggest one that we've all been given, is heaven. We have heaven. We can't see it now. But heaven is a miracle. That is where the curse of sin that has entered the world is abolished totally and completely forever. That's what all these miracles are doing. There's the ultimate miracle. We will no longer have pain, no longer suffering. We are in unity with God and worship all the time. So do we know that heaven is a miracle that came because of Jesus' blood? Do we realize that we as humanity are trying to build our own heaven here on earth? Even though Jesus told us we have this miracle, even though we know it's there, we're still trying to create our own heaven here on earth. We're all born into this sin, so none of us are born knowing God. We need to accept Jesus into our lives before we can be a part of his family. So we're born apart from his family, not a part. It's one word. We're born separate from God. And so what do we do when we're born separate from God? That, that puts us in a bind. We need to find God. But if we don't know who God is yet, we're trying to build our own heaven here on earth. We see brokenness. We try to do our own thing. We want to try to build our own happiness, our own joy. We try to do things to fulfill ourselves. But... As a lot of us in here know, we can't fulfill ourselves outside of Jesus Christ. But that's what we're trying to do. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing. They aren't putting their hope in Him. They're doing that instead. In verse 4, we see that Jesus refuses to give them another sign. Because they're not really wanting a sign. The evil and adulterous generation will only get the sign of Jonah. So this is also referenced for the second time in um, Matthew 12, 39. I'm, I'm not sure when we would have been in Matthew 12, 39 um, as a church. I'm guessing about two years ago, at least. Um, so let's look at that, verse 39 and the subsequent three verses. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You ask for a sign, but you don't really want one. You say you want proof that Jesus is Savior, but you wouldn't believe it anyway. You've already made up your mind, you evil generation. The sign of Jonah, the prophet who the Pharisees respected so much. He was a big-time prophet for them. He was swallowed three days, three nights in the fish. And then he goes to Nineveh. And they repent. Nineveh, Gentile city. They're not even Jewish. The Pharisees would hate to hear that. That they, that city, will actually judge them. Because even they agreed with Jonah. Now Jesus, greater than Jonah, is here. And they're not seeing it. Even the queen of the south, this was in 1 Kings chapter 10, went to test the wisdom of Solomon. It was the same thing. She was going in the same way, testing Solomon's wisdom. And then in the end, she even learned her lesson. But you won't. 
you evil and adulterous generation, Jesus is telling them. You'd rather put your hope in yourself. You'd rather put your hope in your own abilities and your self-righteousness and your rituals and your structure when all you really need to do is come to me and you won't do it. Why won't you do it? Why are you testing Jesus for a sign rather than seeing the ones that he's already given you? Please don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Jesus left them and departed because that was what they did. They already made up their mind. And so I pray that you can know that heaven is a great miracle and that you can trust Jesus, that you will experience that miracle someday. And where does that leave us? Where does that lead us this morning? That leads us to repentance. I was thinking a lot about repentance and I was looking into repentance about as much as uh, the red skies. And in English, our definition of repentance, the way that we use it in English, um, is to, is to turn away from. We often say it's to, to turn from your sin. Um, and that's not a bad thing. To turn from your sin is good. We, de- we should do that. Come to Christ, turn from your sin, yes. Okay? We don't want to sin anymore. Do we still sin after we've known Jesus? Anybody here? Does anybody here know Jesus and have you ever sinned and known Jesus? Raise your hand. Shoot. Me too. That's all of us. We've come to Christ. and that I know. It's shocking. Corey can't believe it. He can't believe it. And, but this is what happens. Even though we come to Christ, we've still sinned. So does that mean that we never really repented? Well, no. That's not what that means. It is a part of our maturing in our faith and our part of our life of sanctification. But, um, but that's actually not the definition of repentance. Repentance is it's used in the Bible, in Greek, in the New Testament. Uh, repent or repentance, either as the noun or the verb, is, uh, is metanoia or also metanoia. I think I said it okay. I said that with a weird accent, though. That was not a Greek accent. Um, but it's used 56 times in either sense. And both of these, meta, here is uh, the definition is to change after, being with, to change after. And then, um, and then noia is the mind, after the mind. So what we get here is to think differently afterwards. Our mind changes. We actually think differently. That's what repentance is, to change our way of thinking. And so what does it mean then? If, what is the way of thinking that we're changing? Is that belief, what we already talked about in John. Belief. We have to change our way of thinking and believe that Jesus is Lord. Acts 2.20, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to repent toward God. We need to change our way of thinking and tell Jesus, yes, I believe. I believe, Jesus, that you are who you say you are. And this is what held the Pharisees and the Sadducees back. They could not believe. They could not repent. They did not repent. Salvation comes when we change our way of thinking about Jesus, when we believe in him. And that's what they were not doing. That's something that a lot of Clevelanders right now are not doing. They're not repenting. They're not changing their way of thinking. And it's hard to do that, to change your way of thinking. And it's something that happens continually. Again, just because you've come to faith does not mean that you are now perfect. Just because we know Jesus promises doesn't mean it always happens. You look at Genesis 16. Look at Abram. He has a covenant with God that he will have descendants. And yet, instead of believing that, and this is Abraham, this is our founding father, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. We sang this when we were kids. We are one of these descendants, okay, as numerous as the stars. So he, he was still God's, but 
even though he had this covenant with God, he still didn't really believe and have as much faith as he could have because he decided to have a son with somebody else. He actually commits adultery, more or less. He's with somebody else. That's where Ishmael comes from. It came because he was not really still committing every single thing and putting all of his hope and his trust in Jesus. And Abraham is a fine man. We're all here because of him. Okay, so just because you know Jesus already doesn't mean you're done, doesn't mean you're done repenting, doesn't mean everything's easy, doesn't mean everything's perfect. We need to come back to him. And this happens in our everyday situations, as I'm saying. Maybe you've talked about that, that you were going to start a Bible study at work. You got a new job, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And, you know, maybe next week I'll do that. Now, here we are, 15 years later, and there's no Bible study at lunch. That happens. Time flies. So do it now. Don't wait for a sign anymore. God's given us a sign. He's already told us what to do. And the reason for this is that we want people to believe. We want people to change their way of thinking. Romans 10, 14, 15. How are people going to believe? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so you, Gateway Downtown, your feet are beautiful as you prayer walk through this city. As you're led to a conversation, as you're led to wherever you are, These are beautiful feet, and they're going, they're teaching, they're preaching the Word of God. Maybe we're gossiping the gospel. Maybe we don't have a full presentation, but we can at least say, hey, here's what Jesus has done for me. And it's up to them to decide what they want to do. We go acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we leave the results up to God. That's all we can do. So that's what we're doing in our prayer walks. We're going out. And so all of us this morning, repentance, what this needs to be coming from, yes, personally, for yourself, do it, but also communally, as a church here, as a community. We want to be repenting constantly, changing our way of how we're viewing God and Jesus so that we can go more directly to Jesus' heart and we can fulfill what he's calling us to do that much greater. The Pharisees were refusing that. We can be like the Pharisees. Let's not be like the Pharisees. This week, or after for that matter. We're going to walk over to the church um, now. And uh, we'll, I think we're ending with a, we're not ending with a song. Um, so I will pray here, okay? And as I'm praying, think about it. Think about your own heart, personally, where you are right now. What is something that you need to repent of? What is something that you need to change your way of thinking? You need to see Jesus more clearly. So instead of trying to build your heaven here on earth, you trust Jesus that the miracle of heaven is for you later. Let's pray. God, thank you for being here. In us, in our hearts, in our minds. We want to hear you clearly right now. We want to see you this week. We want to understand you more. God, help us grow in our faith. And as we grow in our faith, that's going to come from us repenting, changing our way of thinking, believing more strongly.
and you and who you are and what you've done for us. God, I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. That because of that, we can live and we can live life more abundantly. And I thank you that I know that. I thank you that I know people are here that know that. But Jesus, not everybody does. And I pray that you will use us by your grace in some way this week to share a little truth of who you are with somebody that doesn't know you. That we can share a truth of who you are with somebody that does know you. Jesus, we want your name to be lifted up in Cleveland. That's going to start with repentance. We pray for that to happen. Be with us this week, even as we go right now to our new space. God, if there is something holding us back from signing a lease tomorrow, I pray that you'll show us that sign. But I thank you for all the signs you've given us already that are leading us there. And I pray that we will continue to plan and move forward in our vision as a church to love God, to live in community, and to serve the city. That all of those things will happen because we love you and because we're seeking you and we're following the signs that you're constantly giving us. Thank you for being our personal Lord and Savior. We love you. Amen.